What do you do with power when you have it? Do you keep the promise you made when you didn't have it? It's the question I hope will guide the whole show. This is the AMC Mayfair Witches podcast, and I am your host, Amy Nicholson, writer, critic, podcast host, and aspiring witch. There is a new show in the Anne Rice universe on AMC. From the network that brought you the critically acclaimed Interview with the Vampire comes Mayfair Witches, based on Anne's best-selling supernatural trilogy, Lives of the Mayfair Witches. So wherever you are listening right now, take a second. Imagine, through the invisible power of audio, we are forming a coven. You, my good witches, my good warlocks, my good merely witch-curious people, we are going to explore Anne Rice's magical universe of the Mayfair Witches together. Each week, I will be your guide as we talk about the latest episode of the show with the actors, the writers, and the production geniuses who summon it to life. Today, we're unpacking episode one, The Witching Hour, with the star of the show, Alexander Daddario, who plays Rowan Mayfair, and showrunner Esther Spaulding. But let me give you a little witch warning, because if you have not yet watched the first episode, you are really going to want to do that before listening because we are going to get into every dark corner of this story, okay? You have been warned. You have been cautioned. Cross my threshold. I fear for her and for her unborn child. Oh, dear God, I fear for us all. Before we get deep into this episode, we need to talk about Anne Rice. I was a spooky, murder-obsessed kid who read Anne Rice probably a little before I should have. She imprinted heavily on my young, impressionable brain, and I feel safe admitting that here because I suspect a few of you listening are nodding along in agreement. What struck me about Anne is that even more so than the other dark and twisted writers I grew up loving, Stephen King, Christopher Pike, R.L. Stein, the transgression in Anne's stories, it seemed to come from her soul, from the darkest parts of her soul, her fascination with power and obedience, sex and violence, religion and sin, the choices we make that make us eternally damned. And I'm a full-grown critic now. I've written my own books. I wrote a book on the actor Tom Cruise, and because of that book, people ask me all the time, what's your favorite Tom Cruise performance? And I have to be honest, it's Lestat. Because Tom Cruise was also an Anne Rice scholar. He read all of her books, and she brought out something naughty and erotic and playful in him that no other film has ever captured. She cast her spell on him. She's cast her spell on a lot of people. And I gotta say, it feels witchily wonderful. All of that Anne Rice history infuses AMC's new version of Mayfair Witches. And for all of us viewers, our journey has only just begun. In this first episode, we meet Rowan Mayfair, a San Francisco neurosurgeon who leads a seemingly normal life. On the upside, she lives on a houseboat in the bay, looks fun. She throws martini parties for herself and her adopted mother. That's good. But now things are shifting. She can suddenly kill people with her brain. And she begins to question, where is she coming from? Who is her biological family? What is going on with this newfound dark power? We also go across the country to New Orleans, where a woman named Deidre Mayfair is kept comatose and heavily medicated by her family. In flashbacks, we learn that since Deidre was young, her aunt has been trapping her in this gothic mansion. But then one night, teenage Deirdre breaks the rules. She sneaks out to a party, she meets a hot guy, sleeps with him, and wakes up to see that man is being carted away on a stretcher, and she's pregnant. 
In an effort to protect herself and her unborn child, Deidre makes a deal with this mysterious spirit named Lasher. At the end of the episode, these two timelines get smashed together when we learn that Deirdre is Rowan's birth mother, and Deirdre is waking up. And Deirdre waking up frees Lasher from his captivity. So now, Lasher is on the move, and he is looking for Rowan. I'm going to get into all of that and a whole lot more with my first guests, Alexander Daddario, Esther Spalding. Let's get into it. Esther, Alex, welcome to our coven. Or perhaps you're welcoming me into your coven. Yes, come on in. Welcome. <laughs> Join us. Can you both introduce yourself, say your name, what you do on the show? Hi, I'm Esther Spalding, and I'm the co-creator and showrunner of Anne Rice's Mayfair Witches. Hi, I'm Alex Daddario. I play Rowan Mayfair in the Mayfair Witches. I am so excited that we are all kicking off this season of The Witch together, talking about episode one. But before we get into this first episode, I just want to take a step back. I want to talk about witches in TV and film. And I really, in particular, want to talk about the big one, the Wicked Witch of the West. Witches get a bad rap. So I want to know your take on her. Is she the villain of The Wizard of Oz or is she this grieving sister who was victimized by this random invader who stole her sister's shoes? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that anyone is all good or all evil, right? And I think that a lot of the reason why we do wicked things is because we've been wronged or had pain or suffered in some way. That's what makes us human. The Wicked Witch of the West is a complicated character and in a lot of ways more interesting than someone who's done all of their work in therapy and is perfect and good and, you know... It's like a woman in all of her complexity dealing with some really difficult feelings, right? Yeah, you're getting at the heart of Rowan, too, because she thinks she's a Glinda, but she might be a little bit more of the Wicked Witch of the West in there. I think about that story about the Wizard of Oz all the time because we do all of our sound mixing and playbacks at the Sony lot, which used to be MGM. And that's where they filmed the Wizard of Oz. And I've worked there over the years, and there is the stage that's very very famous, which was the where the Emerald City was set and the big melting scene and everything. And when I came to do the first playback for Mayfair Witches, I walked on the lot and I thought, I'm on the side of the witches now. Like, I'm not here for Dorothy's team. I'm here for the other team. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, Esther, I'm going to put you on the spot right up at the top. You're putting the show together. You need a witch. You need somebody that we can root for. But you also need somebody who's going to send a man to the hospital before the opening credits of episode one. You need somebody who's going to kill a man in this very same episode. So when you met Alexandra, what made you decide, yes, this is my homicidal-ish witch? (laughs) (laughs) When we talked about this part, we said, who is the most wonderfully kind of magically seeming witchy actress? And Alex's name was right there on the tip of our tongues, just as somebody who would be perfect. I have to say, to be able to play somebody who is absolutely, completely believable as a competent, with it, together surgeon who's in charge of her own life and driving her own boat around San Francisco Harbor, and then also be as vulnerable and freaked out and emotional and sort of torn apart and unknowing of who she herself is, to have those extremes inside of you is extraordinary. And we knew the, you know, within seconds of talking to Alex that it was all there. Well, I'm fascinated by this casting in particular because 
Alex, you've been really open in interviews saying that there was a long stretch of your career where you didn't feel like you had the power. Even when you were getting started, you got a note to dim down your natural power, that your eyes were too big and too blue to be in front of a green screen. Can you do anything to make your eyes smaller? And this role is all about a person coming into power, learning that she doesn't have to tamp herself down, learning that she never has to make herself smaller. Well, to be fair, I was probably going like this. Whoa, you're widening your eyes at me. It's a little bit too much or something, <laughs> like over-emoting. That note might have been designed to help me. <laughs> but I think of myself in all these different ways, right? We all do. We all know we have all these different parts of ourselves. But when you show something publicly or you have a career that's based on one thing and you lean into it, those are the types of roles that you get. And then you can kind of paint yourself into a corner, right? So this was a huge opportunity for me to explore a writer who I was really interested in and a character that was different than anything I've played. I mean, is that how you felt too, Esther? I mean, you're telling this story about empowerment right now at this point in history. What was your relationship with Anne Rice in general before this show? What made you want to tell this story now? I mean, I knew Anne Rice and I had read about Anne Rice and I had read the vampire novels. I hadn't read the witch novels until this came up. But I think the thing that really, really in this moment drew me to the material and the books was just the feeling that I have that living in this world, horror is a real response to the world we're living in. You know, we live in really strange and surreal and horrifying times, particularly for women right now, for women's bodies right now and the kind of battle over women's bodies. And all of that, I just felt like I'd never felt before that horror would give me access to ways to write about that that were really interesting and different. And that Anne Rice had written about it in a really like advanced way. You know, she wrote these books more than 30 years ago and it's like she was delving into material about what it was to be in a female body and that I don't think anybody else was thinking at that time. The places you could go here were so exciting. How did you wind up getting involved with the show? So Mark Johnson, who's the executive producer of the show and who's sort of in charge of all things Anne Rice, he's also the executive producer of Interview with the Vampire, approached Michelle Ashford, who is the co-creator on this show. I had worked on a show called Masters of Sex with Michelle, and she knew Mark Johnson very well. And he said, you know, I'm doing all of this world of Anne Rice. We want to do the Mayfair Witches. Uh, Are you interested? And Michelle said, I am if I can write with my friend Esta. It seemed write to her to kind of make this two women working together on something, finding a way to tell a story of women's empowerment. Well, speaking of these themes of empowerment, I want to talk about where Rowan starts her journey in this episode. Let's listen to a clip where Rowan is not yet able to embrace her powers. How can you be so calm every time he does this to you? Because getting angry won't help my patients. Yeah, but it might help you. Yeah, or get me fired. No way. If you go, I go. Listen, someday I'll have Kex drop, and when I do, when you have my job, you will never have to do what I just did. You'll be able to say what you need to say and be who you are, and it'll be a new day. And remember, the slow blade penetrates the shield. Wait, what does that even mean? I don't know. Some guy said it to me in a bar. When I saw the scene for the first time, I felt that little shiver of recognition. Oh, I've been there. Oh, I've thought the way Rowan does here. 
I imagine a lot of people watching the scene felt the same way. But have either of the two of you felt that in your careers? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, what I love in this story is that that is the kind of coat that Rowan's been told to wear, but there is something restless underneath that that's bucking against that and that's going to explode in a way. And it's so gratifying when it does. Yeah, I I think especially this is just my experience as an actress. You always worry, oh, if you complain, if you try to point out, listen, this isn't right. And I feel that something should be done differently, that if you make the wrong person angry, that that can backfire. And so I think it's a really interesting exploration. This character, as she steps out of that and realizes that she has more control over things than she probably should. And what does that mean? What is she going to do with that power? It's really fun, too, that she sort of says this to Maya, this, you know, when I'm in charge, it will be different for you. Because I thought about that moment in a musical when the character at the very beginning sings their I wish song. You know, I wish the world were this way. And this is the show that you're watching is about the world being this way. And this is Rowan's I wish song. You know, I'm going to have power someday and it's all going to be different. And it's the question I hope will guide the whole show. When she does get power, will she be different? Will it really be better for other people? Will it really be better for the other women in the family or in the world? It's a great, 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 I hope many seasons long question. What do you do with power when you have it? Do you keep the promise you made when you didn't have it? And it is a great point because she sounds very confident in the scene that she will one day have Dr. Keck's job. So when Dr. Keck calls Rowan out for being arrogant, is he right? He's absolutely right. He sees all the way that she's placating him and and kind of pandering to him and all the manipulation that she feels is really subtle. He's seen it and it isn't so subtle and... I mean, I hope we're sort of glad that Rowan can't keep it all contained, but it's what makes their relationship interesting and full of conflict. I mean, I have to admit, when Dr. Keck goes down, I thought he actually died for a second. I thought maybe he was gone for good. And I felt happy about that. Is that wrong? (laughs) (laughs) There's a little wish fulfillment in this episode with all the gatekeepers who are, you know, stopping Rowan from her fabulousness being felled. I mean, from what I can see, Alex, you are loving, let's call it releasing your inner witch. I mean, on the red carpet for the premiere episode, you've got on black and gold lace. You've got a corset, a choker, the darkest lipstick I've ever seen. And, you know, in the spirit of that release, that exuberance, I want to actually listen to this moment, the moment when Rowan finally starts to let loose and just rage out at the doctor who is literally peeing in front of her. Don't tell me my hunch about you is wrong. I hate being wrong. Because someone like you is never really wrong, are they? After all, you're so powerful. You're so special. Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe you don't get what we're doing here. I know what I'm doing here. I'm pretending that I find you interesting. Pretending that I think you're smarter than me. Pretending that I admire you, but I don't admire you. In fact, I see through you to this small, needy man-child with the raging ego, the dupe who overpays for a fake Rudan, the bully who can only feel good about himself if everybody else is minutia. You think that you should live forever, why? So that you can piss in front of more women or play God with cancer patients' lives? Or maybe you think that you should never die simply because you're such a dazzling gift to the world, so busy changing it. Let's coin a term. 
this is not just a moment of wish fulfillment. This is witch fulfillment. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely. I think Michelle and I were very aware that we felt <laughs> quite happy with these scenes and these moments after many, many years of, you know, some similar experiences. I have to say there were a couple women in the production who said, yeah, like, oh, God, I had a thing happen like that with somebody. Oh, yes, I've had a man pee in front of me like that. Uh, you know, there were a bunch of women who said this. I know this feeling. I know what Rowan's going through. No, that happened to a friend of mine. Her boss did that, peed in front of her. He peed in front of her? Yes. And then, like, my mother watched this episode with me, and she was so glad when he died. <laughs> she was so happy. The reaction is so great, too, in that moment. The, like, way that, Alex, that you sidestep over and kind of move out of the but You don't actually. You're like, I've got my paperwork. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. It's just, like, really fun. Yeah, and, like, in my head, I'm like, how do I make this work? Because I still need this job. I have to save my mother. I have to do this. So I'm going to have to just deal with this. And that sucks. Well, the way we see Rowan dealing with everything in this episode you know, seems like it's pretty hard on her. You know, she gets this advice that she gives to Maya from some guy who said it to her at a bar. And we get the sense she spends a lot of time at bars. She's drinking Tito's, she's drinking Sapporo, she's drinking red wine, she's having good morning martinis. You know, it's only episode one of the series. We see her reaching for the bottle a lot. We see her reaching for any sort of dude companionship. If the bartender won't go home with her, she's going to flirt with a rando until the bartender will go home with her. And then the bartender calls her out. And I think this scene is really important for understanding who Rowan is and where she's at when we meet her. So let's take a listen. I can't believe you'd really have fucked that clown back there. For months I've been watching you from behind the bar. This revolving door of guys. It's got to be so lonely. Why are you watching me? I like you. Well, for one, I bring guys like that home because they don't lie next to me and hunt me with questions. What exactly is it you're looking for? Your one true love? Fuck you. No, I, I think it's sweet. I actually, when I was a kid, I remember feeling something like that. I had this weird idea that my shadow was this being that was somehow part of me and he I, I seemed like a he he was someone who knew what I was thinking and he knew my most secret secrets and he loved me and he always had I hope you find him I mean why do you think Rowan runs to this guy as a way of dealing with such a terrible day that she's had. Like, what is she trying to get from sex with this bartender dude? It's a release, right? Non-committed sex is what she's into. She doesn't want a relationship. I think there's also the element of being desired, right? So when you have a stranger who wants you and makes you feel you're powerful, it makes you feel like you're in charge and, you know, and getting getting drunk and picking a guy up who you're not in love with and have no intention of being with, it can feel very freeing. You're finally getting out of your head. You don't have to think about anything. You're drunk and you're focused on this feeling of being wanted and you know you're going to throw him out at the end of the night. 
And for sure, that's the Rowan of the book. I just love that the bar she goes to, there's only like firemen and police officers. She doesn't want <laughs> to run into anybody from the hospital who really knows who she is. She doesn't want to talk about work or anything to do with ideas and thinking and whatever. She just wants complete escape and release. And that's, you know, she gets it through sex with these kind of anonymous guys. And she gets it through going out on that boat in the stormy weather. Again, Anne Rice was writing stuff that was right out there. Do you think Rowan has ever been in love or what she even thinks love might be if she felt it? You're both shaking your heads very firmly. (laughs) We all know someone like this, and I'm sure at some point I was a little bit like this. You have to be so vulnerable to be in an intimate romantic relationship. And Rowan is just not that. She wants to have power and control. The other element of it is she knows that there's something about herself that she doesn't feel people will understand. So she tries to hide it from people. And I think Mm -hmm. if she got too close to anyone, they might not accept her or might find out that there's something different about her. So I think that all plays into it. Totally. And that speech about, you know, my shadow self, I think there's even in her deep core self a feeling of the familiarity of a lasher, that that is a true kind of other part of yourself or soulmate in some way that's out there. I I always picture that she had a taste of that, the playground incident. There was a kind of taste of a connection to something that was different about her that was connected to lasher and that she is waiting for that real union for better or for worse. So I do want to just say we have to talk about the Deirdre scene with Lasher at the big party in New Orleans. Deirdre sleeps with this young man, but the creepy spirit Lasher is watching her the whole time. Let's listen to a quick moment of that. There's always a party at your Uncle Cortland. Well, now I think we have a winner. Young man, I have a job for you. I do want to press you for more information on like the creepy glittery claws of the guy she's sleeping with, the painted mask. I have a feeling that's something you're you're going to hold out for. We're going to get to this in later episodes. But can you tell us anything fun or anything we should be looking out for? Well, I think it's interesting and worth noting that Cortland was picking out that young man for her before he knew she was coming. Yeah, Cortland is not doing that just because he has a really twisted fetish. <laughs> it's true. I want to imagine he also does have twisted fetishes, though. Probably. Well, Esther, you are a bit of a sex expert. You did write and also co-executive produce Masters of Sex, you know, a show that's all about the study of sexuality. What do you make of the fact that Anne Rice wrote some of the most hardcore erotic scenes in modern literature, but she also married the very first boy she ever kissed? I think the imagination is a powerful, powerful sexual organ. It might be the most powerful sexual organ. And uh, she had an extraordinary, extraordinary imagination. And she dealt with a lot of her very sort of conservative upbringing in the church. And when she first kissed her husband, she thought she was going to hell after kissing him the first time, you know? So I think a lot of her really wonderful exploration, I think that's how she dealt with this very conservative way she was brought up was just diving straight in. I mean, this Mayfair book trilogy is full of sex. How sexy is this show going to get? Pretty sexy. Keep watching. (laughs) All these sexy actors. (laughs) For us, uh, Michelle and I, having worked on Masters of Sex, it was really fun to get to write sex scenes where, like, 
they were with demons and stuff. It didn't all have to be <laughs> happening in a lab. <laughs> we thought, you know, there's no sex scene that we haven't written. And in fact, there are many that we had not written and they are in this season. Well, let's take a step back and talk about witches and, and witchcraft overall. I mean, I know now that you are Team Wicked Witch. Appreciate that. But are you both open to powers, let's say, beyond modern medicine? You know, have you lit candles, bought sage, worn a crystal? Do you care about your horoscopes quite deeply? I mean, I've done all kinds of weird stuff. I will try anything. Yeah, I've done sage and crystals and I've been to like healers. I'm always fascinated by psychics and magic and and sometimes the magic, you sort of find it when you're least expecting it. You're like, there's no way mm. that that's a coincidence. There's just no way. It's too wild. Totally. <laughs> I, I grew up in Hawaii, which is a place that feels absolutely full of spirits and ancestors. And so as a kid, I felt very, very believing of those things. And, you know, then I moved to the mainland and I went off to college and it all kind of fell away. But I've had moments in my life where strange enough things happen that it feels like the universe can't be simply what's before my eyes. Many, many, many years ago, I was not a writer yet. I was working in a different job and I was on an airplane and I'm very, very frightened of flying. And so the woman next to me was comforting me and telling me her about her family as we were taking off. And she said she had these two daughters who were models and whatever. And so politely I said, do you have a picture of them? And she took out a picture and I had taken the photograph. What? I had been working the summer before at Toronto Harbor. I drove a tour boat. And this family came by, uh, you know, tourists or whatever, and they said, would you mind taking our picture? And I remember them very clearly, partly because they had this beautiful Labrador, chocolate Labrador dog. So I looked at her and I said, I took this picture. And we ended up in this really deep, connected, interesting conversation for the flight. And then she gave me her address, as people did back in those days. And we wrote back and forth for a while. And uh, it was a couple months later in some letters she wrote me. She said, you're supposed to be a writer. You need to change things. You need to change your life. And so the reason I became a writer was because of this random woman on a plane. <laughs> Wild. Sp- and I mean, what are the chances that I would say, could I see your photograph? Like, it all just felt so odd. So there are times in my life where the compass needle has turned because of something strange. And I think, okay, this is a crazy <laughs> world. It's not what we think. Too weird. <laughs> you just reminded me that this one time I broke up with a long-term boyfriend who was Peruvian. And then I said I was going to go to Peru on my own, just like have my own Peru experience. And the day I got there, I went to a restaurant and I was sitting next to an older couple and I found out that he was the doctor who had delivered my boyfriend. <laughs> how did you find that out? Like how did- Because I clearly had no idea what I was doing. They're like, oh, what are you? Where are you from? Blah, 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 blah. We're so-and-so. And so I recognized the name of the doctor right away. That's crazy. <laughs> Anyways, the world is weird. The world is weird. Very. But as we're talking now, it's been a little bit over a year since Anne Rice herself passed away. I was wondering if in this year, as you were really putting this show together for the both of you, did you feel any bit of her, her, the weight of her ghost, I guess I would say, the weight of her legacy? When I was reading the book, the first book in the Witches series, I had like a million questions I wanted to ask her about Rowan, the characters, what the deeper meaning was. And so I became obsessed even more than reading the book. I became obsessed with reading her interviews. And it's hard, by the way, to Google Anne Rice interviews and come up with anything that is an interview with the vampire. So it was like this very challenging thing to find things that were 
witching hour Mayfair witches specifically, but I became sort of like looking at archived articles from when she was promoting the witching hour when it first came out and weird little books that I found on Facebook groups that were just like a compilation of her answering questions by emails to fans. And so I tried to learn a lot about her and what who she really was through that for some reason felt that was very important as far as understanding what the deeper meaning behind all of this was. Yeah, that makes sense. What about you, Essa? So when we got to New Orleans, the place that I rented was very close to the house where Anne Rice wrote The Witching Hour, um, which is a beautiful, beautiful house at the corner of Chestnut and First Street. And I made a habit every day during prep and, you know, as we're location scouting and so on, to walk past the house and just kind of you know, look up at that space where I knew she'd sat and she described in interviews writing the book there. And I would think, you know, are we getting this right? Are we were, are we getting it how you want it to be? And there were these crows that circled around the house and at twilight they would come and they would settle on the wires. So I had this kind of strange idea that the crows were carrying messages to Anne for me and would tell her, you know, I'm trying really hard to get this right. And I have to say, slowly crows started to make their way into the scripts. So if you see a lot of crows in there, um, it's those are the crows that settle on the wires at Anne's house. I love that story. I'm so glad you brought that up. I love crows too. Yeah, I walked to that house hundreds of times. I just, it was such a like touchstone. We couldn't shoot in it, but we did get to scout it and go inside and see it. And does her son own it? Her son does not own it. But I don't know if you, if I ever told you this, Alex, but our location manager... John Mamet grew up in that house before Anne owned it. That's crazy. And he said there was a ghost who tucked him into bed at night. And when he was very, very little, he would say to his parents, like, ah, and his parents said, no, 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 it's lovely, it's friendly, it's helping put you to bed. And so he got used to this ghost who would pet his hair at night when he went to sleep. So it was John who took us through the house. He knew the people who were living there now. And uh, anyway. Oh, New Orleans is so haunted. My mom says she has one that does laundry for her. Oh, does the ghost <laughs> want to come over? I know. That's what I said. <laughs> She'll go downstairs and the clothes she put in the washer are in the dryer and she didn't do it. <laughs> that's awesome. This has been so great, you two. But before you leave, I want to end with a little segment where you put yourself in a decision-making moment with a witch in this episode. And I think we just have to call it our witch fulfillment segment. At the end of this episode, we see Lasher make a deal with Deirdre that gives her tons of power, but possibly at a cost. So my question for both of you is, would you agree to Lasher's deal? I mean, I would hope that I would never want to make a deal with Lasher. There's always a price to pay. It's hard because as the character, as Rowan, she can't resist him. But as a reader of these books and as a, a person, I would say no. I would hope I'd have the strength to say no. But that's the thing about Lasher. He always knows exactly how to get what he wants and exactly what to give you that makes you just sort of melt. I agree. I would not put on that necklace. But I think it's a sign of just how terrible things are for Deirdre, just how heartbreakingly awful her life is, that it feels like the better choice to make this connection with some being that at least sees her and feels 
to her like love. But it's a kind of heartbreaking choice, I think. I mean, love comes in so many forms and sometimes it's a trick. Totally. If I said I might put on the necklace, would you never talk to me again and keep your distance? (laughs) It's a very pretty necklace. (laughs) It's got to open the door to something. So, you know, there's that. We thought a lot about the fairy tale of Bluebeard's castle with this and that room you're not supposed to go into. And we always talked about that key being the key to that room. And then in the writer's room, we would say, what's in that room? What's in that room? What's in that room? So that key is significant. It's going to open something special. Well, this episode has opened something special into the world of the Mayfair witches. And I just want to say this has been such a fun conversation. Esta, Alex, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, such fun. Okay, my dear coven members, I think I now trust that Alex and Esther have enough witch in them to tell this story. But what I'm really curious about is I was kind of expecting them to come out and say, witches, good. But what they also seem to be saying is, witch is good, but maybe they can do horrible, horrible, bad things, and maybe they're not so good after all, and we have choices ahead of us. Is Rowan capable of doing evil? Are we watching the show capable of rooting for Rowan to do evil? And we will see what Rowan does over the course of this season. Before we go, though, I want to share an ingredient to throw in our witch's cauldron. An eye of Newt to shape how we're seeing things. And by the way, you might actually own eye of Newt. I know it sounds crazy, but if you check your pantry, it's really just mustard seed. Do you know when the witching hour is? There is a specific time. It is between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the morning. So if you are listening to this podcast in that window, congratulations. You are super spooky. But also, if you are up at 3 a.m. in the 1500s and doing whatever people did before ye old podcasts were invented, that would be highly suspicious behavior in the eyes of the Catholic Church. And I hate to break it to you, but you have just been burned at the stake. Episode two is titled The Dark Place. And so next week on the podcast, Esther Spalding will be back with us and we'll also be joined by the legendary Annabeth Gish who plays our matriarch just waiting to wake up, Deidre Mayfair. And we want to hear your thoughts, questions, reactions too. What do you want to know about witches? Because these are the people to ask. So please call into 888-994-WTCH. That is 888-994-9824. Your message might even be included right here in future episodes of the podcast. Make sure to watch Mayfair Witches every Sunday night on AMC or stream it early on AMC+. For an extended 30-day free trial of AMC+, go to amcplus.com and use the promo code MayfairPod. That's Mayfair, P-O-D. Podcast episodes drop on Sunday nights after the show like magic. So subscribe wherever you listen. And thank you for listening to the AMC Mayfair Witches podcast. This is an AMC Networks podcast produced in partnership with Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at AMC Networks are Kevin Dreyfus, Celia Quinnett, and Brian Swarth. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis, Barry Finkel, Max Linsky, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our managing producer is Aaron Kelly. Our producer is Ben Goldberg. Ari Saperstein is our editor. Mixing and engineering by Hannes Brown. I am Amy Nicholson, and thank you again to Alexander Daddario and Estes Balding for joining us in our coven. <laughs>